Explore the history, relationships, expertise, and data that go into ensuring Stein growers get maximum yield potential. This is the Stein Seedcast. Here's your host, David Thompson. Hello, and welcome to the Stein Seedcast. I'm your host, David Thompson, National Marketing and Sales Director for Stein Seed Company. We've got another great interview lined up with special guests, expert insights, and discussion on everything you need to know about maximizing yield potential. On today's episode, we're going to be visiting with Megan Anderson, field agronomist with Iowa State University Extension. We're going to talk about we control takeaways from the 2021 growing season and what growers should plan for when it comes to weed control in 2022. So with us today, we have Megan Anderson, who's an extension field agronomist with Iowa State University. And I'm real excited to have Megan here to talk about weed control. Uh, it's become, you know, especially in soybeans for sure, a big topic as it relates to traits and technologies and just the weed profile that we have. So excited to have you here. Welcome, Megan. Thanks for having me. So before we get started, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background? Yeah, so I'm an extension field agronomist for Iowa State, and I serve uh, nine counties in central Iowa, and so there's 11 field agronomists, and uh, we all serve different territories across the state, but I'm kind of a weed nerd, I guess, right? So I get roped into all kinds of stuff like this, Uh, but I am an Iowa State grad. I got my uh, bachelor's and my master's there, and I grew up on a farm in central Iowa, so I've got kind of... I guess, agriculture in my blood. I've been involved (laughs) in it for a while anyway. Good, good. So, so I guess one of the things I want to talk about is is kind of uh, talking about the year that was, right, here in 2021. In our neck of the woods, we had really good yields, but sometimes that doesn't always mean success in every aspect of the game, right? A win's a win, right? But at the same time, there are always things to improve upon. So, I guess from your perspective, and I know you'll go out on the road and talk to a lot of growers, what what do you talk to growers about coming out of this year we've had as it relates to their weed control? Yeah, absolutely. This was, you know, I think I say every year, right, that this was a weird year, but it just feels like, again, uh, this year was really weird uh, because we were so dry to start the growing season out. And really the last couple growing seasons have been like that. So 2021 and 2020, and it just depended a little bit on the timing and when we got rainfall. Uh, But it seemed like that really affected our residual control and definitely noticed more weeds uh, throughout the growing season. And so, you know, in the the fall of 2021, a lot of the discussion is that sort of um, self-reflection for farmers, right? Thinking about what the big weed issues were in that growing season, because that's going to be what comes back to kind of haunt you the following growing season. And of course, we had other issues as well, right? Uh, Volunteer corn, right? Through that big derecho swath across the state. And there are probably going to be areas next year that see volunteer corn because of other storms and stuff. Or in the 2022 growing season, they'll see that. Um, But really just thinking about those weed management issues, what, what were the problems Uh, that you saw still lasting at the end of the growing season because those are likely to be the issues that we're dealing with uh, into the future years, right? Because they're going to be the biggest seed inputs into the soil. Uh, And primarily, right, throughout much of Iowa, it's water hemp. 
and that's kind of an every year thing. But occasionally there are those sort of one-off issues or or strange things that pop up. You know, we see more velvet leaf. Uh, we see more giant ragweed causing us issues. Uh, but water hemp, of course, is always the star. So is velvet leaf in particular, is it a is it difficult to control? You know, it's not particularly difficult to control, but I think as people started to look uh, more toward group 14 products post to control water hemp, uh, some of those contact type products, maybe the velvet leaf was too big. And so we, we saw this kind of resurgence uh, in velvet leaf populations in, in some fields in Iowa, especially in like non-GMO beans uh, or in areas where there's a lot of non-GMO production. Um, we've seen some more of that. Um, so some of those larger seeded weeds are kind of sneaking through. So, so in, in those cases, that'd be a contact herbicide where they, it, it relies on getting really good coverage and that particular plant is pretty evasive at having stuff stick to it. Well, so. it's just a big plant, right? And it's yeah. covered in that nice soft hair, right? Yeah. So, so uptake could be a challenge and there are, there are products that are super effective. You know, glyphosate's pretty effective against it. Uh, products like Cadet are very effective against it, but you have to be sort of conscientious in how you use those uh, to get good control. And so it's sort of fell by the wayside. Nobody thought about it because glyphosate was so good about it. But now we start pulling in these other herbicides that maybe weren't as effective against something like velvet leaf. And then we need to think about velvet leaf a little bit more because it's what ends up persisting. And you mentioned water hemp. Obviously, that's, you know, I think uncategorically probably considered a driver weed for most of... (laughs) Most of the Midwest, uh, you know, uh, what, yeah, how do you, how do you address that kind of, kind of situation? Yeah. I mean, I, I think if we really knew how to address it, it wouldn't be such an issue, right? <laughs> like if right. we had that, that silver bullet kind of answer for, vel- or for water hemp, you know, we wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation right now. Uh, but really given that it's a, driver weed for a lot of farmers, that's really where the conversation starts, right? So what are you um, doing? What kind of soil types are you on? Uh, You know, really drilling down on how they're managing their herbicides and where tweaks can be made, because that's what we're doing at this point, right? We don't have any, like, uh, there's no brand new glyphosate with a big red bow on it that's some, like, silver bullet herbicide to take care of this weed issue. Um, So at this point, we're looking at how do we tweak our herbicide programs to make them more effective or our weed management program to make it more effective. And in a lot of cases, um, there are improvements that we can make uh, that can really help with the water hemp management specifically. Uh, But then we need to be thinking beyond the herbicides in a lot of cases as well. And that's a much harder conversation to have, especially if somebody has a really good herbicide program and it's still not doing it. And we know that that exists out there just because water hemp's too dang smart for us, I guess. Um, but it's it's really this kind of comprehensive process of, you know, where have you been? Where do you want to be? Because everybody's expectations for weed control vary a little bit as well. And so, so having that conversation and seeing where those deficits are and where we can make improvements. Well, and, and I think that's probably from my perspective, probably one of the hardest things from the weed science community. A weed scientist once told me the best time to change your weed control program is when it's working perfectly. (laughs) That's exactly right, right? You get comfortable with the weed control 
program that works really well, a herbicide program that's super effective, uh, and you just use it year after year. Well, it worked well last year, so yep, right. let's let's use it again this year, and that works until it doesn't, right? And when it doesn't, it usually crashes pretty hard. So earlier you mentioned about uh, you know we control across a fair part of the Midwest was probably less than ideal this year. Uh, you know, again, and some things you can't control. You can't control the weather. But how how do you advise growers to try to mitigate what may or may not be a problem for them? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a good question, right? Uh, I, I think probably the, the simplest thing is, of course, to start out by just making sure that your, your herbicide program is a really strong herbicide program out the gate, right? So there's a lot of conversation um, and it seems like it happens every year. Do we leave the residual out of the program? You know, am I wasting money on this residual uh, because I'm not expecting that we're going to get rainfall or I'm, I'm worried that we're not going to get rainfall in order to incorporate it into the soil and actually make it work against the weeds? And uh, I think we could worry about that kind of stuff like till we're blue in the face, right? But rainfall is going to come. Most of our herbicides that we use aren't breaking down via sunlight or, you know, exposure on the surface of the soil. And so starting out with that really strong herbicide program to begin with helps us sort of protect against some of those issues that come up, right? So it that's really where I think we need to start, right? Thinking about what kind of rates are we using? What kind of products are we using? Are they effective against our target weeds? Uh, do I have resistance issues to those particular herbicide groups uh, that I might be using? And then it's a matter of, you know, making sure that when we are making those applications, they're happening in a timely manner. And I think really importantly, especially as we've diversified our herbicide programs and we're using maybe some products that we, uh, you know, that they, they work a lot differently than glyphosate does that we need to be thinking about what is the label actually saying on these products for things like carrier volume? What kind of adjuvants, surfactants, water conditioners do I need to have in that tank? What sort of spray quality do I need to have? Do I need to be changing out my nozzles for this spray versus this particular application that I'm making? Um, and probably the next level from that, you know, if you can get all that stuff kind of correct is like tweaking those herbicide programs and tweaking our management on maybe more of a per field basis, right? I talk a lot with people about, you know, we are taking corn hybrids and we are managing them on a sub field level, right? We are choosing particular corn hybrids that we think, you know, we're doing two per field or we're doing them in certain areas of the field and not in other areas of the field because that's where they're going to do better. Unfortunately, it's really hard to do that with herbicides, but I think in some cases we can get to a at least differential field management for herbicides and really improve how we are managing our weeds and targeting specific weed issues, right? Like a farmer knows far better than I do what his specific weed issue is in X field. And so it's so fun to have those conversations with somebody and sit down and talk about that and say, you know, what's your biggest weed issue in this field? Do you have anything obscure that comes up or bugs you year after year, right? What are you seeing commonly? And, you know, inevitably you hear like, well, this one field has 
Pennsylvania smartweed or burr cucumber or whatever weed that's just, you know, it's not in every field. It's not a problem everywhere, but perhaps that's enough to warrant a slightly different herbicide program than, you know, 90% of their fields where water hemp is their only issue. Sure. And in our side of the business, that's interesting because it kind of goes back to, you mentioned the idea of multiple hybrids in the same field environment. And although there's a lot of advantages to that, there's also something to be said for just raising the minimum, right? Like, like finding the, the best possible option that applies across all those acres, the most adapted. And that kind of oh, goes yeah. to the weed control solution is, is just making sure your weed control solution is comprehensive across that acre uh, rather than saying, well, this is, this, you know, this is the best op- that'll fit across all my acres. Right. Yeah. You're going to be talking to growers this winter, uh, you know, doing a lot of meetings and things like that. And I assume there's, there's, we talk a lot in your business about what didn't work, right? What, what Definitely. are the, what are the things that, what are the things that, that you saw in 2021 that were more positives, things that are being done right, things that are going well? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that there are a lot of positives that happen. I think people have done a lot of really great work to diversify their herbicide programs, make sure that they're coming out with strong residuals early in the season uh, to get some good management on water hemp. I think a lot of those applications are happening closer to planting maybe than they used to, which is going to be really desirable for water hemp management as opposed to being out there like a couple weeks ahead of planting where you're allowing some of that product to break down before, you know, the weeds are ever even going to be up. I think a lot of people did a really great job of controlling their volunteer corn. There were definitely challenges, right? We know that antagonism is an issue, uh, but I think farmers as a whole did a really good job of managing that as a, you know, quote, weed issue, uh, even though we don't typically consider it much of a weed. It was something that was a little bit different that people don't usually think about. I do think water hemp was a struggle in a lot of fields, uh, but I think people are doing a much better job of being timely with their applications, particularly post-emergence, than maybe we have been in the past, right? You get kind of used to killing the four-inch water hemp plant that's maybe 12 inches tall, right? And the products take care of it really well. And I think a lot of people have learned that that just doesn't work anymore and that we do need to get those water hemp when they're really small post question about because you know water hemp is kind of one of the group of really difficult weeds right to to take care of and we were talking in a different conversation about what I call hardening off of weeds sometimes the idea that that spraying that weed you know then you got to give it some time to kind of digest and kind of recover I mean is that the right approach or you go right back in a sequential pass you know when you have a really difficult weed let's say you kind of knocked it down but it's not out I mean, do you go right back after it or do you let it kind of, uh, you know, regroup? There has been a lot of success in some of these sequential applications, but they do have a bit of a delay in between them. So typically 10 to 14 days. It's not like an immediate thing. You're hitting them with one and then coming back three to five days later. You're waiting a little bit longer, allowing that plant to process that herbicide some and then coming back and hitting it a second time. And there's been you know, a lot of good research, it's mostly happened either in the south or to the east of us, but looking at sequential applications of like a a 240 or dicamba product and something like Liberty, right, one after the other, or looking at even a group 14 and a Liberty type 
product, like two contact herbicides, one after another. Um, and they are more successful, right? It's another pass. Um, it's not something maybe I would want to plan on having to do every year, right? Right. Uh, but it is uh, an opportunity. You know, we obviously we sell Enlist E3 soybeans. That's been a product that's been increasing, I guess, in acreage over the last year. I mean, as you talk to growers, what are you seeing with that solution? I think most people are really happy with their plant growth regulator options like the Enlist. They've had a lot of success with it, regardless of whether they're choosing to use the 240 or the Liberty, right? They're both very effective options against the weed spectrum that we have, especially the water hemp, right? So far, at least in Iowa, fingers crossed, right, we haven't identified populations of water hemp that are resistant to either of those herbicides. And so they are still effective options post. Um, we, of course, need to guard them carefully. We want to make sure we're using them appropriately and in a timely manner. Probably the only time I've really seen struggles with it is when we let those weeds get too big, right? And then we, we do a really good job of maybe twisting up the weeds or burning off some of the leaves. But water hemp has too many growing points once it gets above that four-inch size or so uh, that it's just too easy for it to come back, unfortunately. Okay. Well, and you mentioned resistant water hemp. So just recently, article about dicamba resistant water hemp confirmed in Illinois. Yes. Um, being, we're in Iowa here. Uh, so do you guys, I mean, how do, how, how do you guys work with that? How do you address that? Or how concerned are you? Is it one of those cases, well, it's probably here and we just haven't tested one yet? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it's definitely here. Uh, and so, you know, that's not, it's not dire, right, at this right. point, right? We still do have some options, but it's getting to this point where we're quickly checking off all these options or crossing them off and saying, yep, that's that's not going to work in this field anymore. And so in those areas uh, where we are using these products heavily, especially, we need to be managing them appropriately by doing things like trying to avoid maybe plant growth regulator use in the corn year if we can, or in the rotation with soybeans, if we're using it heavily in the soybean year, uh, making sure that we're keeping up with the rates, um, uh, making sure that maybe we're not using it every year, right? So we do have other alternative herbicide options. Uh, maybe you're using 240 one time when you're in soybeans and you're coming back with Liberty the next time, uh, right? If those are both effective options for you, that's a really effective way to sort of uh, stave off the resistance, right? Because every time you can kind of avoid using it, you're maybe pushing it off a little bit longer. Doesn't mean it's not going to happen, right? right? But you're just, you're you're trying to beat the clock at this point. Yep. And, and I guess for better or worse, you know, I think there's the thought that there's a lot of, there's more options in corn, right? From a weed control perspective, at least historically has been. Is that, yeah. is that, kind of the case. Yeah, I mean there there historically has been, but if you if you spend too much time looking at corn herbicide programs that people are using currently, it's it's pretty darn discouraging, <laughs> right? I mean, there's just there's not a lot of options from that perspective because you think of what do people rely heavily on in corn? Well, historically it's been products like atrazine, a group 5 herbicide, uh, some of the group 15 products, maybe acetochlor, metolachlor. Um, and glyphosate, group nine. So 
you pretty much had those three herbicide groups. Maybe some people were using dicamba and corn or 2,4-D, the group four product. Uh, but most people, you know, if glyphosate's not working as well as it used to, the natural thing is to sort of move toward these HPPD inhibitors or the group 27 herbicides. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, some people are seeing reduced control with those. We know there's quite a bit of resistance in water hemp on the landscape to those products. Well, what's the next option that people go to? Well, unfortunately, then it's a plant growth regulator. Um, and so if we're using a group four product like 240 or dicamba in the corn year, and then now we're relying heavily on those in the soybean year too, and our only really other option is kind of liberty in either growing season, uh, at least post, um, it doesn't really feel like we have very many more options in corn, unfortunately, than we do in beans. So, yeah, so really it, it's not. And then it's a product of mixing and matching because you have to say, well, we really can't do the same thing in soybeans that we're doing in corn necessarily. Right. I mean, ideally we would be able to do this this rotation of herbicides in addition to making sure that our program each year is really strong. But there's so much overlap in the herbicides that we use, or at least in the herbicide groups or the sites of action that we use, that it's really hard to actually effectively do any rotation in some cases. And unfortunately, that's a product of just no new sites of action coming down the road. Yeah, yeah. Since about, what is it, like the 1980s, I think, was the last time we had a new herbicide site of action for use in corn or soybean. Yeah, and was that HPPDs? Yep. Yeah. Group 27 products yeah. were the, that's the the newest and hottest thing courtesy of the mid-1980s. So, <laughs> Well, retro's cool sometimes, but. Yeah, I mean, I think the 80s were, were cool for as much as I was present in them the whole two months or so. <laughs> I want to I hear how you talk to growers about dicamba volatility. Dicamba volatility is sort of like the elephant in the room that like nobody wants to talk about, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's. It's just a fact of the chemistry, right? And it's it's something that that we've always known has been there, right? Ever since dicamba was was first really well researched, we knew that that dicamba was a plant growth regulator that could get up and move. And and honestly, the the same was the case for 2,4-D, right? We knew that there was a volatility issue with 2,4-D as well. Uh, we've been able to manage, I think, the 2,4-D volatility with different formulations a lot better than with dicamba. For whatever reason, something about that chemical uh, doesn't lend itself to, you know, we haven't been able to transform it into a different kind of dicamba that doesn't volatilize, right? That'd be the ideal situation is that we could totally eliminate volatility as an issue with it and then then it would be a really great chemistry to use in the middle of the growing season. But the way the way that it's used right now is a challenge, right? It's a challenge, not necessarily because of the, it's not that the chemistry doesn't work. It's just that it works, right? And the time of year that we're using it also happens to have, you know, high wind speeds, low wind speeds, prone to temperature inversions, and it's hot and all of those are bad for chemical movement, especially with volatile chemicals. And unfortunately, it just the issue hasn't been solved yet. 
Yeah, and and kind of as you alluded to there, I mean, one of the someone I talked to who was has a background in, in chemistry and that experience had said one of the n- native things about that chemistry or, or or that family of chemistry is it moves. I mean, I mean, part of how it works is um, that volatility is sort of a necessary function. The question is how much, right? And 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 can you control that? And to your point, I don't know as we've gotten real good at that yet on the dicamba side. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I don't want to speak for any of my colleagues, right? But the majority of fields that I've visited where there have been issues or cases that I've looked into, pictures I've received, it's very minor injury on soybeans, right? Neighboring soybeans, soybeans where we have no idea where the dicamba could have come from, but we aren't picking up really obvious drift patterns in most cases. I think I could count on one or two hands how many fields I've looked at where there's a really clear drift pattern. And I think that's probably the big issue that brings into concern that volatility, right, where we have an even distribution of injury across 40 acres, 80 acres, hundreds of acres in some cases. And unfortunately, if you can't tell where something came from, it's really hard to nail down why the issue actually occurred or really even where it originated from. Well, and and if you would, I'd like you to elaborate a little bit on that, on that point of where I think you were talking about kind of delineating between physical drift and volatility. Yeah. Because one of the things we heard this summer from a lot of folks is, well, it can't be volatility damage because the whole 40 acres is that way uniformly. Like, like, so it's clearly bad genetics or it's a bad lot of seed or, you know, for, so for us as a seed company, you know, we, people say, well, that's a problem on the seed. And, and so I guess if you would go back and kind of tell more about that. Yeah. So, I mean, there's several ways that dicamba moves, right. Or that, you know, many herbicides can move the first of which is physical drift, right. Where, where that happens at the time of spray typically. And you know, has to do oftentimes with excessive wind speeds. And so what you see is you see more damage closer to the originating point of the chemical application. That's pretty easy, right? People are fairly tolerant of that because they can tell where it came from, right? Like if I go to my field edge and it's worse damage here and I talk to the neighbor, right, who sprayed Mm -hmm. that particular chemistry, we have a conversation, figure out how to settle that. The issue comes in with these other ways that products can move, like temperature inversions. So that's where you apply a product, small droplets maybe uh, hang in the air after that application, uh, and then we get very low wind speeds, and that can move basically like a cloud wherever the very low wind speeds happen to be going. And we can get really even distribution of injury from that. And so with dicamba being prone to both volatility and being applied at a time where temperature inversions are pretty common, unfortunately, those tiny little droplets, they can either hang in the air from the application or we can actually get volatility of these little droplets into a temperature inversion. And then those move as a cloud. And I think it's really hard to distinguish volatility by itself from volatility into a temperature inversion and then it moves with this you know very low wind speed sort of cloud so you think of like dust hanging in the air on a summer night right like 
vehicle goes down the gravel road and you just get this like cloud of dust that just kind of hangs over the gravel road and moves very slowly through an area. And so those are the situations where we get that more even coverage of injury. And unfortunately, soybeans, it's, it's a sensitivity issue. Soybeans are so incredibly sensitive to dicamba that we just end up with maybe hundreds of acres that are evenly damaged from end to end. And so I've never heard so many excuses for other potential issues that could cause plant growth regulator injury as I have this summer. Uh, but the fact is there's no documented evidence that any of these genetic things are factual or, you know, whatever other rumors are out there, right? And it's funny how new ones pop up every year, it seems like, and it gets a little bit more dramatic every year. Of course, strains me <laughs> and my colleagues a little bit more, but it's it's just a fact that soybeans are super sensitive and the product we know can move. And that kind of jives with what we learned because so we were getting a lot of, again, a lot of inquiries from customers and dealers uh, for a lot of these various reasons or, or different excuses and things that were coming up. And so we adopted a policy. We're just going to test it. We said the one way to know is is send in a sample and test it. And so at last count, we had about 425 samples uh, that we collected from across the Midwest, and they ran about 79% positive for presence of dicamba. Now, that doesn't say that it was economically, you know, impactful, but the that wasn't the question we wanted to answer. The question we needed to answer is, can we define, is it, you know, are we seeing dicamba or are we not? And, and you know, almost 80% of the time, that's what we were seeing. So. Yeah, and unfortunately, dicamba is a product that breaks down relatively quickly in plant tissue. So oftentimes, because of that delay between when injury actually, right, when the application ap actually happens or the drift happens or volatility and the point at which you can identify the symptoms, right, we're looking at maybe a two to three week delay depending on the weather and depending on the, how the soybeans are growing. And sometimes that product can break down in a plant within a couple weeks. And so if, if we don't catch it for three weeks or a month, even if we send those samples into tests, we may not be able to find dicamba, even if it was there. And so I'm impressed that you were actually able to find it on 80% of the samples. Well, especially because some of the samples, uh, you know, the lab got really backlogged. So we had some samples that took eight weeks to process. And I am convinced, uh, we haven't looked at the data, but I think we'll find that we had a lot more not detected in the last couple of weeks than we had in all of the first yeah. <laughs> Two months. But but like I said, we're going to have to look at that data. But but again, our, our goal was just to say, let's not let's not wonder about what it is. Let's just find out. And then and then we know. And so that's kind of what we what we undertook that effort to do. I guess we talked about, you know, your plan. So as we head into 2022, you know, you're just going to focus on talking to growers about what what we did in 21 and, and how to do it better in 22. What, what's your take home message for them? Yeah, so I think uh, we need to take what we did in 2021 and, and do it better. And unfortunately, it's probably going to be harder in 2022 with all this concern about supply chain issues and actually being able to get a hold of some of these products uh, that we know are staples of either burn down applications or post-emergence applications, particularly glufosinate, glyphosate, maybe even some concerns about some of those uh, products that you might turn to for grass control, 
right? So things like the clethodims of the world and uh, fluazifops or whatever group one product of choice somebody might have. And so, so it's really, you know, as important as our residual herbicides have been, both pre-emergent and including those post-emergence, especially in soybean, they are going to be even more important this year because of these concerns about maybe needing to cut rates or maybe not having enough of those really good post products that we rely on on hand. And so I think more than ever, people need to be looking at that. And like you said, that's going to be a challenge this year with supply chain issues that we're hearing about. So they may get to try a new product, whether they want to or not. Right. Or look carefully about where they're using it in their program, how they're using it and whether it can, you know, be used more efficiently. I mean, the, the silver lining that I've heard is that I really haven't heard any issues with residuals, right? And those should be kind of the backbone of our programs anyway, because, right, we are looking at a huge potential population of weeds. If we can eliminate a percentage of those or a larger percentage of those before they ever leave the soil, that takes that much more pressure off what we're doing post and makes those programs or gives them the ability anyway to be that much more effective, right? So if you've got a population that is changing into some resistant population and 10% of the plants are going to be resistant to what you apply post, it would be really nice to take a chunk of those out with a residual herbicide so that your post doesn't even have to deal with those. And so that's, we just need to look at every opportunity to chip away at those weeds so that when it, when we do come back with the post, as long as we've got the products that we can use and we can use them effectively in a timely manner uh, that we actually do get good control still. Yeah. And, and the best time to kill a weed is before it becomes a weed. Yeah. Before it gets out of the soil, that's a good time to kill it. <laughs> Well, thank you, Megan Anderson, Extension Field Specialist at Iowa State University. been a real great conversation. I think you've given us a lot to think about and, and glad to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's our time for today. I want to thank all of our guests and listeners for joining us on another episode of the Stein Seedcast. We'll be back again soon with more expert interviews and insights about all things Stein. To never miss an episode, subscribe to the Stein Seatcast wherever podcasts are found. To learn more about Stein and its elite corn and soybean genetics, visit steinseat.com. Subscribe to the Stein Seatcast wherever podcasts are found. Stein has yield. <laughs>